0: are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast. with Richard Jacobs.
1: Hello, this is Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the Finding Genius Foundation, newly formed and uh, host of the Finding Genius Podcast. I have a returning guest. Uh, She was great last time. This time, I'm sure it'll be good too. Uh, Her name is Yaa David. She's at uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering. She's an assistant professor in the Department of Pharmacology at Weill Cornell Medical College. Uh, Also deals with physiology, biophysics, many, many areas. Um, This time, we're going to talk about cancer and epigenetics, how the two are interrelated. So, Yao, thank you for coming back.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I'm I'm happy you enjoyed it last time, and I, I hope I won't disappoint this time. (laughs)
1: yeah it's really fine so epigenetics if you can just explain that like in layperson's terms and then we'll relate it to cancer
2: Sure. So just to remind you that epigenetic regulation basically means the regulation of the expression of the genes, uh, a specific set of genes in the cell, which means that the cell or phenotype fate is actually determined epigenetically because all the cells in our body contain the same genetic information. So, how each cell exerts its unique function and uh, and, uh, phenotype is determined epigenetically after or above the genetics. And epigenetics is, regulation is composed of many, many different layers, everything from transcription factors, DNA modifications, RNA modifications, and um, and modifications of histones, which are the proteins that package the DNA in the nucleus, which is really the focus of research in my lab.
1: So if I take up, if I take up smoking cigarettes, I guess in pretty <laughs> short order, a lot of genes will be upregulated and downregulated and... I'll experience, my cells will experience a lot of epigenetic change to, I guess, to adapt to the cigarette smoking.
2: Exactly. So the thing about epigenetic regulation, it's how cells respond to, to extracellular signaling. And sometimes these are signaling from neighboring cells. Sometimes it's external, like if you smoke a cigarette. Um, sometimes it's a systemic response. Sometimes it's a metabolic response. So the it's very, very interesting how cells sort of distill a response through a set of genes that will change how the cell functions just to handle or, or react to a certain uh, stimulus or a certain signal. And if you smoke cigarettes, there are, there are what we call the immediate early genes or immediate early response. So these are genes that um, are upregulated very quickly after exposure to toxins in order to cells mainly the lungs to react. Um, but there are also long-term effects, especially to um, damages such as toxins found in cigarettes, but also um, and many, many other exposures, and, and of course in metabolism, where there is a long term change um, in chromatin in the sort of this DNA histone structure. Um, and that can affect um, sort of the cells, the cell division, the daughter cells. So, not just the fate of a single cell, but actually a whole set of cells in a certain environment.
1: So, how much of an epigenetic change is one way? you know, a, a gene gets methylated and silenced and that's it, it's not coming back. Or a histone gets modified and that's it, it's irreversible.
2: Well, that's the, that's the important part about epigenetics, that for the most part, it's dynamic. So if DNA gets methylated, depending on why it got methylated, um, there are enzymes that can take off the methylation if you need to reactivate the gene. Sometimes there are regions in our chromatin that are permanently silent. Uh, I mentioned it last time. These are regions that are either structurally important. So it's important that they're rigid because they form uh, certain regions in the chromosome and those have to stay um, sort of intact or rigid. They can protect the ends. They can make sure cell division is accurate, centromeres, telomeres, et cetera. Um, But some regions are more dynamic. So where genes are turned on and turned off. And by the way, the regions that are, more rigid, usually don't code for genes. They're the, Those are regions of the DNA that people in the past used to call them junk DNA uh, because they don't encode for anything. But now uh, it's known that these are important regulatory uh, regions and important for the cellular function.
1: Yeah, so um, I ask you, um,
2: mm-hmm.
1: epigenetic change, where does it preferentially happen in the genome? So I guess you just answered that. So it, it, it affects the um, parts of the genome that regulate other genes?
2: So it's it would be simplistic to say that epigenetic regulation is only happens in gene bodies because the expression of a gene is actually dependent on many regions that are non-coding, including promoters, which is where the transcription machinery docks or enhancer that loops the DNA in order to mediate this recruitment. Uh, and sometimes these are uh very close, you know, kilobases, and some of these are very, very far uh, from each other, but they still regulate the genes that is sort of associated with them. And there are regions that are called super enhancer, that they're more the initial enhancers and re- they regulate many genes in a certain transcriptional program. So if you need to uh, respond to a certain stimulus, several genes are reg- actually regulated by the same sort of super enhancer.
1: So, okay. Um, what happens in cancer? Do you, do you think that the uh, epigenetic marks are removed, which allows the cells to do things they wouldn't normally do? Or they're the two So,
2: yeah. So it's very, very interesting because cancer is actually sort of a cell from our body where its transcriptional program had changed and caused it to either grow uh, irregularly Uh, proliferate, migrate, uh, do things that it's not supposed to, um, or become, uh, in order to do that, many times they become stem cell-like, because many cells, once they have a certain function, uh, many times they either don't divide or they divide very slowly. And in order to create this cancer, the transcription program has to change to A stem cell-like, because stem cells uh, undergo rapid cell division. Um, So many times that means that the epigenetic program in the cell has to change. So now regions that are supposed to be uh, repressed because they belong to uh, a stem cell or to a specific time in, in the cell cycle or in the embryonic development and in mature cells, they're silent. Uh, now they're active for transcription. And other regions that are supposed to act as tumor suppressors, uh, there are very famous ones like P53 uh, that are the guardians of the genome. They, they make sure that... Um, that the cellular program is controlled uh, now they are repressed so the cells don't have regulation all of the sudden um, so these are the two sort of ends of the coin so usually in cancer you either have tumor suppressors that are now being suppressed themselves right so they don't express so they can't protect the cell or you have oncogenes uh, which are genes or oncoproteins that drive cancer, are now being upregulated. But in order for these two processes to happen, right, so repression or activation of transcription, you need to have a change in the epigenetic program. You need to have these genes are now now have to be physically either open or closed. And uh, for that to happen, many proteins has to be, have to be recruited.
1: Mm-hmm. Look, One quick question. How can a gene be an oncogene? What is this normal function?
2: <laughs> so that's a great question because often people call a protein or a gene oncogene, but really it's there for a reason. So for example, there are genes that are very important for development when, during embryonic development, right? When you're in, an embryo and they're responsible for proliferation, for differentiation, but then they are silenced in, 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 once, once, um, once this stage is over but if now they are expressed in a mature cell now the cell exerts these types of function these types of phenotypes right it becomes also, a stem cell like an embryo and it starts dividing uncontrollably so organic okay. development or times it's during specific times in the cell cycle
1: are there any oncogenes that actually are involved in like mitosis normal cell division
2: yeah Definitely. There are many, many oncogenes that are uh, very tightly regulated through mitosis. And what happens in cancer is they're upregulated and their, their activity is not terminated. Because through the cell cycle, they're activated in these spikes, right? Where they're active for a very short time and then they're turned off. But what happens in cancer is they're not turned off. They stay active, for example. And then that continues mitosis and cell division, right? Uncontrollably.
1: Right, got it. So do you have any insight into the order in which a cell you know, becomes cancerous? Do you know what happens first? You know, how early on do, do marks come off?
2: The million dollar question. So there are several cancers where it's already been shown to be uh, really epigenetically um, driven cancers. Some of these are lymphomas. There are the more famous ones, leukemias, so many blood cancers. Um, but if you, you know, try to scroll back, scroll back, scroll back, and try to find what is the change that made that difference. Um, sometimes it's very hard to. Uh, some people say it is related in some cases to, um, you know, exposure to toxins like in smoking and that um, that types of um, toxin they can change the DNA itself, Uh, so it creates DNA damage and create mutations in the DNA itself, but it can also change uh, the, for example, patterns in methylation or other DNA modifications and change their epigenetic um, um, profile. For example, we work uh, now on colorectal cancer, where it is a methylation of a promoter of a gene that seems to drive about 40% um, of colorectal cancer. And we're trying to understand one, how is this methylation even occurring? How is that being induced? Uh, because the, um, the cancer is driven epigenetically through this methylation, but like you, like your great question, what causes this methylation to happen? And two, How is this downward, the downward lift this gene drives cancer? Um, So we have some really uh, interesting insights and and hopefully I'll be able to share that soon to show how a fully epigenetic, uh, epigenetically driven cancer. So start to finish, it's epigenetic. There's no mutation. There there are no, um, yeah. um, Well, to me,
1: epigenetics is is deliberate adaptation. It's not random. It's not mutation or anything like that. So, I mean, I can see I would would
2: speculate. Sometimes it is not deliberate. It's sort of an abrupt. For example, one of the things, like I said, that we're interested in is metabolism. So there is accumulated metabolic damage on chromatin. That's not deliberate. That's changing the epigenetic landscape because there is metabolic damage. But the way cells read this epigenetic change is you know, causing cancer because it changes, it upregulates genes that are oncogenes.
1: So the cells, I mean, I know they try to fix things. Do they tolerate Mm -hmm. some level of damage and some levels of damage seem to escape their ability to fix or navigate around? Exactly.
2: So what what we found is that what cancer cells do is a high level of damage, they cannot tolerate. No cells can tolerate. They just die. They undergo apoptosis. Um, But a sort of medium level damage is good for them because it changes chromatin in a way that allows them to express lots of oncogenes. And it also allows them to keep high metabolic rate without paying the price, like I said, of like going through a massive damage. Um, and the way they do it is by expressing proteins that may, that keep the damage under control. And we call these the garbage men. Um, so these are proteins that go over the chromatin and they clean up the damage. So sort of part of the strategy, the very, very smart strategy that cancer cells take is they upregulate their metabolism uh, to in order to proliferate and generate a lot more biomass. Um, but they also overexpress these cleaning proteins, uh, these garbage man proteins that will go over and make sure that they don't accumulate massive damage. So it's a very sort of um, interesting way to, to deal with uh, with this high metabolic rate.
1: Yeah. Um, I've heard of, um, you know, obviously sequencing people's genes, proteomics, metabolomics, et cetera. Is there like epigenetomics? I don't know what you'd even call it, but <laughs> can you, can you see the methylation state, the, the use of histones, you know, when you sequence someone's genes, can you see that?
0: If you like this podcast, Please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes.
2: So there has been a huge uh, leap, technical leap, in the way uh, we understand uh, epigenomics and, and epigenetics. There's um, there is actually a huge effort by the community to combine many of these essays, but there are many essays that allow you to see exactly where histone modifications occur in chromatin, how exactly which regions of the chromatin are accessible or inaccessible, which regions are close in space, but far in sequence. Um, yeah, we use, we use uh, many different essays to evaluate these parameters. There's, Uh, essays to exactly to locate where is methylation on DNA occurring Um, there. Yeah. So what we like to do is basically take a condition and apply all these methods and then try aligning them to see where, which, uh, which of them correlate. Now, as much as I love all these essays, that's exactly one of their problems is that they're very correlated. And then you go back to your excellent question about causality, and that's much, much harder to answer in epigenetics. So well also, I was, there's a lot I was of controversial of, around that.
1: Yeah. Also, too, I don't know the speed at which epigenetic changes happen. I know it depends. But if I wanted to, let's say, profile you know, someone's epigenetic changes or marks on all their cell types, you know, first of all, it'd be impossible. I guess you'd have to kill them and take all the cells. But um, if you're not, if you're you're trying to capture the current marks on a cell, it would have to be, I guess, in vivo. Because once you even do a, I mean, even if you do a, I don't know, a blood sample, the act of drawing the blood and it's out of its normal environment, the lack of cellular cues might cause it to change. And you're not really seeing what's there in situ, you know, in vivo.
2: That's very true. Um, one way to overcome this, what m- many of the essays do, is they fix the cell or they cross link the cells very immediately. So to capture that specific state. Um, and that's great for some essays for all the, what we call chips. So chromatin immunoprecipitation, which allows you to locate where certain things, um, you know, where some modifications are, where certain transcription factors are located, um, et but it's not good for other essays where you're trying to understand what's the, you know, um, uh, real time architecture of chromatin is. So you're right. For some essays, you can capture this uh, with cross linking, with fixing, but for some you don't. Uh, there are many efforts that are related to single cell. Actually, one of the pioneers in single cell um, um, uh, transcriptomics is actually at Sloan Kettering, Donna Pair. Uh, she's the chair of computational biology, an incredible uh, scientist that, uh, that does really in-depth single-cell analysis of tumors, for example, in order to understand their composition, but how exactly each cell in in the layers of the tumor um, functions and exerts its phenotype. Uh, Some assays are more sensitive, and we can do, like I said, single-cell transcriptomics, but there are major, major efforts now to do other epigenetic analysis in a single-cell level. And um, I want to say there, there has been already huge progress, but I have a feeling that within five to, you know, seven years, we'll be able to do all these essays um, on a single cell level. And that will give us a lot of information on the evolution of the tumor in terms of epigenetics um, and, and its composition and maybe even start drawing some sort of a timeline, an epigenetic timeline of the tumor.
1: Yeah. I was going to say that. Has anyone been able to, take a solid tumor and slice it and look at it, you know, from the center outwards, um, how does the epigenetic change cascade? Or, I mean, tumors are very heterogeneous anyway. Can you tell, you know, if there's, if there's change, what happens first, then next, then next, then next? Can you see an order?
2: Yeah, so not yet, <laughs> but uh, I think we're close. I think we're very, very close. We're already able to look at the transcriptional program. So that, that was already a major, major step. Um, I think it's going to take maybe five to 10 years, but but we'll, we're underway. The other thing I wanted to mention quickly, because we talk a lot about histone modifications and um, you know, and causality and whether we can prove that they indeed cause a change. But one of the biggest change, conceptual changes in, in understanding the role of histones in cancer was the discovery of what we call oncohistones. Uh, it was it was pioneered by several people in, in the New York area, including David Alice and Vivian Tabar and uh, Nandi Jabato uh, from uh, Canada. Um, but what they found is that uh, there are genetic mutations in histones. So it's kind of counterintuitive because we mostly hear about histones in, in the context of post-losserial modifications. Um, but in fact, there are mutations in histone proteins themselves that drive cancer, mainly pediatric glioblastomas, but there are other cancers that are now being identified. And the fact that what? changes in, in the sequence of the histones induces or causes cancer Uh, really spoke to the causality because these genetic changes, they change the capacity of the histone to undergo modification. So that speaks to the role of this modification uh, in cancer.
1: The histones themselves, I just just pictured them as like, you know, non-interacting spools that the DNA
2: will
1: will spool around, but are they interacting with the Yeah, I guess they are. Well, they must be. Yeah, so
2: exactly. So for many, many years, people thought exactly that, that they're inert, that they're just structural proteins. But the discovery of post-insertification and the flexible tails and and the sort of language they have, we call it so-called histone code, uh, that allows them to recruit specific effector proteins that can change chromatin landscape. Um, made them very, very interesting and, and made the community understand that they're not just inert structural proteins. They actually play a very important role in epigenetic regulation. And I think the next sort of layer is is what we're working on, which is understanding how the environment communicates with histones. So histones... Are modified by enzymes, but what we found is that the environment itself modifies them. And because the DNA is is like I said is wrapped around them, how they the histones change and how their interaction with the DNA changes uh, can change the transcriptional program of the cell.
1: Has anyone been able to use like you know fluoroscopy or light microscopy to watch a um, an epigenetic event happen?
2: Yes, uh, so there are many uh, researchers looking at the dynamics of chromatin and so because you can uh, GFP tag many of these proteins and look at their dynamics there are um, essays where you can look at how fast a protein docks chromatin, for example and there's there's lots of uh, very important insights and what I always find interesting in these in these um, in these findings, is that many times they describe a much, much, much more dynamic state than we envision. Uh, so even in the most, what we call heterochromatic or, or closed chromatin areas that are supposed to be really just structural, uh, there is there are plenty of very dynamic events that occur on them. So I think microscopy is a very um, powerful tool and it allows us to look at some of these dynamic changes. Um, the problem is that it doesn't really allow you to look at it as a single molecule or really understand the, the mechanism at a very high level. Um, there are advances now where people use, uh, and we do that in collaboration with Shishen Lu from Rockefeller University, where they use optical tweezers. So they actually trap a piece of chromatin between two beads and they looked at the, they look at the dynamics of compaction and decompaction on a single molecule level. And then you can start adding histone modifications and effector proteins and see exactly how each protein contributes to the architecture of chromatin that is that is trapped within these two beads. And that's where you can really get a high resolution information about the mechanism of how these proteins function. So, you know, you have always the two ends of the scope where you can have a very in vitro um, setting where you can look at the contribution of each protein, but then it's in vitro it's not in the context of a a, a chromatin in the cell in the nucleus and on the other hand you said you have like what you ask you can use microscopy and then you can look at cells at live cells but then you lack the very deep mechanistic biochemistry uh, analysis biochemical analysis of these events and that's actually i think where chemical biology plays into bridging these two ends and that's also something that my lab does what we try to do is we try to take the precision from the in vitro system by making defined pieces of chromosomes in live cells and then tracking. So that's that's another right. aspect of protein engineering that, that we do in order to try to really tease out these these um, biochemical events that happen on, on chromatin, but in, 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 in um, a native context.
1: Okay. In, in cells that are cancerous, um, do they seem to be more prone to epigenetic change, or less prone, or is there no really one definitely? Way
2: to well, cancer cells are usually more dynamic uh, than normal, you know, uh, fully differentiated cells um, because their transcriptional program is not uh, sort of in tune, right? So you have many different things going on that are not all aligned. So it's generally they're more dynamically. The transcription program is more dynamic in these cells. Uh, moreover, many times they um, they insert a lot of mut- a lot more mutations because they're either downregulation of these tumor suppressors that maintain the integrity of the DNA of uh, you know the proofreading um, of the DNA damage uh, repair. So what happens is you have insertion of mutations, and insertion of mutations often leads to again further changes in the transcription, uh, changes in the proteins, and you know you, you down, go down a slippery slope of very sick a very sick cell.
1: Well, in a in a gene that's mutated, it has deletions or SNPs or whatever. Um, do does epigenetic change happen? More often, less often, in a different way? Like, has that been observed?
2: Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, I don't know the answer to that. I don't know if anyone really looked at whether mutated genes are, are more or less epigenetically regulated than others. Um, yeah, like maybe an I'm easy sure. condition
1: would be like cystic fibrosis. If it's very well known, you know, what's deleted, then if you look at the action of that that area of the genome and how it changes epigenetically versus... Well, the
2: problem with cystic fibrosis is not the expression. The problem, what happens in cystic fibrosis is you have a mutation in a very small region, sometimes a single amino acid, that is now the protein is slightly misfolded and then it's recognized for degradation. Even though people have shown that if the protein reached the plasma membrane where it's supposed to be, it would actually function like 80% off wild type. But the problem is it doesn't even get there. Because the mutation causes it to be recognized by the by ER associated degradation and just get it gets just gets degraded. It doesn't even get to the plasma membrane. So in that case, I think on the transcription level, the protein is being the 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 transcript is being the gene is being transcribed on a normal level, but it's in the protein level that you know, the regulation is actually causing it to be non-functional. Uh, but there are other, many other oncogenes where they are overexpressed um, and many times through uh, epigenetic mechanisms. But the question, I think what you're asking is when they're mutated, not just when they're overexpressed, whether they have even greater overexpression or maybe a, a, a different epigenetic regulation when they are mutated. And, and I don't know the answer. I think it's a very interesting question to
1: to check. Finally, I got one good question on you.
2: you, They're all very good. Otherwise, I wouldn't talk so much about them.
1: (laughs) Oh that's cool. cool. Um, So in terms of cancer, I mean, do you have any new insights on, again, even the order in which a cell – has anyone been able to establish, you know, normal cell? Okay, typically this kind of cancer, the first step – that the cell will take on the path towards, you know, towards bad acting or towards cancer is this. Does anyone know the order in which, like the very, very start of cancer? Does anyone figure that out?
2: You you mean epigenetically driven cancer or cancer in general?
1: Yeah, epigenetically driven because that's probably the most accessible. Yeah.
2: yeah. Um, so often, I'm trying to think because there are many different types of, of epigenetically driven cancer. Like I give you one example where the promoter is – Downregulated by by DNA methylation, but many of the important ones are, for example, uh, translocation that generate uh, a hyperactive enzyme that is an epigenetic enzyme. So enzymes that change chromatin, that modify histones, for example. And there are many um, famous examples that are that are related to to MLL, for example, that it's fused, and in. in that case, um, many people, including Ali Shilatifard, made huge progress in understanding how a chimera of this MLL protein with another another epigenetic, so basically two pieces of epigenetic related proteins uh, can change chromatin and change gene transcription. But the original driver was the translocation. So the original mistake was genetic, but the hybrid that was generated is modifying epigenetic Landscape, so it's kind of interesting. In that case, it's still the the origin is still um, you know mistakes in in cell division and translocation, right during cell division. Um, I don't think anyone has you know have examples to um, except for like like I said the the colorectal cancer uh, examples that I gave you. They don't have an case where it's purely epigenetics. I personally think that the metabolic damage that we observed could be a driver, an epigenetic driver of cancer. Uh, So that we're still working on. So there is the first step is an epigenetic stress, uh, sorry, a metabolic stress. And that metabolic stress is recorded on histones and that changes transcription to now express cancer associated genes and drive um, oncogenesis. And in that case, it would not be anything genetic. It would be purely environmental and epigenetic.
1: Yeah. Can you, can you tell, can, well, can anyone tell, Well, oh, if you do this, then you're likely to end up with this kind of, you know, epigenetic mark. Is there any uh, lexicon or library of, oh, if you do this <laughs> to a cell, this is going to happen most likely?
2: Um, I wish because uh, just like in real estate, it's not just about what, It's also about location, location, location. Um, So uh, it's not just which mark will go up or down, but it's where. And that's the part that is really um, important. Um, I don't think there is a single sort of um, legend where you can be like, okay, this equals this. You know, if you smoke, this equals increasing this. uh, Because also many times epigenetic is combinatorial. So marks affect each other. Um, so, you know, a single mark doesn't have a major effect, but in combination with other marks, it does. So I don't think it's as clear cut as, as often in biology (laughs) is not clear cut and it's much more complex than we think. So I don't think there's like, you know, a single act, a single mod. Um, but there are definitely a lot of, there are many, many, um, risk factors that associate with many of these epigenetic changes and, and smoking is one of them, but also, you know, obesity and diabetes, um, for example.
1: Has has anyone uh, longitudinally looked at a a cell type in a mouse or a person and, you know, looked at the epigenetic marks over time, let's say over a year's time in a
2: mouse? Yes. So there is an incredible scientist uh, called Anne Brunet, um, at Stanford and she studies exactly that. What are the epigenetic changes that happen, uh, or the histone that change over time. And she actually found, uh, she works with, um, very, very interesting model system where they have, um, accelerated aging. So she can follow, uh, these marks as, as these, uh, organisms age. And some of them are really cool fish, uh, called killer fish. Um, and what they have noticed is there are specific marks that are associated with longevity and actually you can almost turn back the clock if you, um, if you regulate them the right way. So there are really key epigenetic events that are associated with aging and longevity.
1: You know, so what do you think, uh, what important work needs to be done in the area of epigenetics to, you know, to figure out, uh, you know, it's relevance to certain cancers. I mean, what do you think some of the most important things to, to figure out will be?
2: I think, uh, Basically, you 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 know you hit the mark with asking about what's the first step. So understanding causality and how specific epigenetic events can drive changes uh, rather than be associated with or be correlating with, but actually drive these changes, um, and that's sort of one big thing. And the other thing is understanding the full histone code. Um, In in my book, that's that's what's interesting, because I think we're only scraping the surface. Uh, We've been studying all these very, very uh, abundant marks, methylation, acetylation that exist on the, you know, tens of, of percentages of the histone. But I think the fine tuning um, events in epigenetic um, are also affected by modifications that are might, might not be as abundant, but can change local chromatin architecture. Um, and so I think there are more chapters to the HIM code. Um, like I said, I think one of them, one important one is how metabolism interplays into that. But I don't think that's the only, I think that's just one of them. So I think there's really a lot to learn there too about um, how cells respond uh, to these cues, but not just by the um, highly abundant marks, but other, um, other mechanisms too. So I would say these are, to me, the two big questions. We have to understand the full spectrum of epigenetic regulation, and we have to understand the causality: um, how how each of these events is inducing a change directly.
1: Well, like the intake of um, <clears throat> extracellular vesicles—you know, whether they're from other cells or from bacteria or whatever—I mean, does that directly cause epigenetic change? Has that been observed?
2: No one looked into that, uh, but these sort of exosomes uh we actually have a a project looking at and i can't disclose anything because i'm not the lead on that Uh, and i don't want to you know uh, uh spill the beans on that but there's we have some really really interesting new data um looking at dna and protein that gets packaged in these exosomes and how they both represent as well as affect uh epigenetics in the um in the local cells that are uh, that are absorbing them, that are uptaking.
1: Yeah, I mean, where else can epigenetic change happen? You know, well, I've been talking about <clears throat> the DNA the whole time, but I guess RNA itself as well, like what kinds of RNA can experience uh, regulation? What does that look like?
2: So we generally, when we talk about epigenetics, we talk about effects on transcription, which obviously is, is the DNA, but non-coding RNA can definitely affect chromatin also by interacting with chromatin uh, as for example, for example, in X inactivation. Um, But under the big umbrella of epigenetic regulation, uh, modifications to mRNA that regulate the stability and the transcription of these mRNA, because ultimately they change, they affect the transcriptional program. They also fall under epigenetics. So uh, we talked a little bit about it last time about um, methylation, for example, of uh, RNA, which is a really hot topic uh, now in epigenetics, because it's um, it's another sort of very important regulatory um, level in, in epigenetics that is very poorly understood. And in fact, while DNA modifications, there are only you know a handful of them have been identified. Uh, there are more than a hundred different RNA modifications that have been identified. So, oh, wow. um, yeah. So, um, you know, scientists like Tony Kuzarides and Francois Fuchs, they're trying to understand the language of RNA modifications. Also, uh, Sammy Jeffrey, um, in, um, in Cornell, trying to understand the, um, these languages, trying to develop tools to study them, trying to see exactly how they change, um, RNA, how they change the transcriptional program of cells. Um, it's, it's a very, very uh, interesting and um, I would say new field.
1: Yeah, well, uh, well, you said there's a hundred ways. Can you uh, give an example maybe just of one or two? that are predominant are interesting
2: yeah i mean the most studied one is is, is m6a uh it's it's been identified on on a uh, large number of mrnas it changes the capacity of these rna to be transcribed their stability so their half-lives um and by changing how much of a transcript will be uh will be transcribed will be uh, sorry translated you're basically affecting how much of the protein is generated right so it's sort of it's one level up from the DNA but it has the same uh, phenotype uh, so M6A is a very important one and there's now there are now many many tools trying to understand how M6A plays into um, into regulating cell fate and um, has been implicated in cancer in several ways so now there are Several companies also trying to develop therapeutics to target it. So it's m six A. I would say is the number one most well studied um, RNA modification.
1: Is there any idea um, within a cell? I know it's very complicated, but do you have any sense of who runs the show? You know, where is the overriding control in a cell? (laughs)
2: Um, That's an interesting question. I know it's an (laughs) easy, easy question, but figured. Question. No, it's it's a very very difficult question because I think if you ask a geneticist, they would say, "Oh, the genes control everything." If you ask an, an epigeneticist, they will say, um, "You know, the epigenetics." And if you if you look at um, cell signaling, they will say, "Oh, it's it's uh, extracellular signaling that controls um, cell fate." So, um, who runs the show? Um, I think I want to think that it's you know. In the cell, cells like a machine that constantly seeks feedbacks. So it's hard to tell what's step one because they're all sort of intertwined. And it's the checks and balances between the different layers that keep sort of cells on the right track. That's why in cancer, many times, you know, you can have. A disruption. We just talked about, you know, RNA modifications being disrupted, or histone modification being disrupted, or uh, some um, transcription factors that can be an oncogene that that has been disrupted. It could be an, an extracellular signaling that is being um, sort of being constantly um, um, t- uptaken. Um, so I would say it's the fine. There's no who wants to show. It's like a it's like a colony of ants that. Work together very um, synergistically. And once one axis is damaged, that can drive it off the rails. Um, but as long as the checks and balances make sure that all these axes work together to some degree, cells function
1: perfectly. So even within a single cell, you don't see a, uh, a unified action. It's still a community of cooperation and collaboration.
2: Yeah, between the different levels of regulation, 100%. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's weird. An even harder question. <laughs> I where... wish there was
2: a there was a queen that you know runs the show in the, in, the, in the cell.
1: <laughs> I guess an even harder question is where is the life in the cell?
2: Ooh, uh, yes. Uh, well, it depends on what you define as life, right? Um, we can talk about this for hours. A very philosophical question. Um, so, a unicellular organism is alive, but is a cell one cell in our body? Is it alive?
1: I would say, yeah, definitely. It sounds alive, but at what point? <laughs> where is the life in it? Yeah, I know it's a very difficult question.
2: No, I like it. it's very philosophical. Um, we can we can definitely discuss in the philosophy of life. If you're generating ATP, you're alive. Then there's there's a lot of things that you would define as, as alive.
1: Yeah. Well, excellent. Like well, yeah. Um, you know, we'll leave everyone with that uh, impossible question. And um, what's the best way for people <laughs> to follow up and see more of your work and to see what you're doing?
2: Uh, well, uh, you know, my lab has a, has a website. We are very active on social media, on Twitter, uh, DavidLabMSK. Um, yeah, just um, you can read our papers, you can write me, and I'm happy to continue any scientific discussion with anyone who's interested.
1: Okay, well, very good. Thanks for coming back again. I appreciate it.
2: Yeah, thank you for asking excellent questions, and have a great rest of your week.
0: If you like this podcast,